Thank you for listening today. We hope that this message from God's Word will help you to grow in your knowledge of God and your relationship with Him. At Lucy Baptist Church, we are fully committed to loving God, loving people, and making disciples. Now here's today's message. Good morning. I invite you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 22. Luke 22, we are continuing in our series of messages in the Gospel of Luke. We entitle that series, Jesus, Friend of Sinners. We, of course, have we've noted how it seems that everything slows down in the narrative of the Gospel of Luke and the other Gospels as well as we approach the cross. We're just, uh, we know we're on this day uh, prior to the crucifixion of the Lord Jesus Christ. We've seen the establishment um, of uh, the Lord's Supper with, out of the Passover feast as we've seen that together. We see uh, the Lord Jesus as he is, uh, has given in this past, in the past, the, the, the final lessons as he's leading up to the cross. And, and now we're, we're moving into um, a garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. You know, typically gardens are, uh, are peaceful places, uh, places where people go to enjoy quiet and rest and peace and beauty. But you know, there are two gardens in scripture that are, have been very prominent in the eternal destiny of the human race. Significant spiritual battles occurred in both of them. One of them is the Garden of Eden that God uh, created for the original pair, Adam and Eve, he placed them there in a very, very beautiful place. But something happened there in that garden with the first man and first woman, Adam and Eve. They were tempted by Satan to rebel against God. And of course, they fell to that temptation and plunged the whole human race into sin. In the second garden that we're seeing in today's passage, the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus, the second Adam, fought the battle in prayer and fully submitted himself to the will of God. We're going to see what that battle was, was all about as we look at this passage together this morning. But in doing so, he submitted himself fully, as he always had been, uh, to the Father to give his life on the cross for sinners, to be raised again the third day to redeem people from sin upon their repentance and faith in him. I've entitled the message today, The Greatest Battle Ever Fought in Prayer. The Garden of Gethsemane is the site of the greatest battle ever fought in prayer. So would you stand with me as we read this passage together? Luke chapter 22, verses 39 through 46. Luke 22, 39 through verse 46. Coming out, he went to the Mount of Olives as he was accustomed. And his disciples also followed him. When he came to the place, he said to them, Pray that you may not enter into temptation. And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw. And he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly. Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. When he rose up from prayer and had come to his disciples, he found them sleeping from sorrow. 
Then he said to them, Why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter into temptation. Let's join our hearts in prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to worship you today. We thank you for the sense of your presence this morning. We pray that you might continue to manifest your glory among us today as we come into a very sacred passage of your sacred scripture. And we pray this morning that we will not tread lightly, that we would recognize that we are on holy ground. And Father, thank you for this very significant passage of scripture and what it says to us concerning the suffering of our Lord Jesus Christ, not only in this garden, but what he would be suffering upon the cross on our behalf. And Lord, I pray that you will just fully captivate our attention by the Spirit of God. We pray this morning that we would, again, recognize how horrible, how wicked is our sin, how wicked we are as sinners apart from Christ. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are so pure and holy as fully God and perfect humanity. And we thank you that you alone were able, you alone were were worthy to drink this cup. You alone were worthy to take our sin upon yourself, to become sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ. So, Father, I pray that you'll give us fresh insight by the work of your Spirit, that you will illumine our hearts, that you would anoint this morning this word as we seek to speak it to your people. And, Father, again, we know in our midst there are those who have yet to repent of their sin and place their faith in Christ, surrendering to Christ as Lord. And may you use this passage this morning to just remind all of us and, and, believe, and unbelievers as well this morning of the wonderful gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that people would be drawn to, to Jesus this morning repentance and, in repentance and faith and surrender to Christ, and that we would worship you in a new and a fresh way as we see your great love demonstrated for us. We love you, we exalt you, we praise you. In Jesus' mighty name we pray, amen. You may be seated. So if you will notice with me from this passage two truths about what happened in this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane. First, first notice that Jesus engages in warfare prayer on behalf of sinners. We see that in verses 41 to 44. And I want us to consider the prayer of the Lord Jesus as he spends time this, in, this, in this garden with the Father. First notice that Jesus prayed in intimacy with the Father. We see in verse uh, 41, of course, Jesus came into this, this garden, this, uh, this garden of Gethsemane, as called here the Mount of Olives. Uh, but he comes into this place, the, the Matthew and Mark's gospel do refer to it as Gethsemane. The word Gethsemane means oil press. Uh, and while the uh, exact location today uh, is, uh, is uh, hard to determine exactly, nonetheless, um, there, are, there, there is a, a, a garden of olive trees at the base of the um, mountain here and across from the Kidron Valley. And we know the Lord Jesus crossed the Kidron Valley into the city of Jerusalem. We would go up for his trial and ultimately for his crucifixion. Karen and I had the, uh, the privilege of, of visiting there several years ago and staying on a hotel on the Mount of Olives that overlooks uh, the city of Jerusalem. 
And, uh, and below that is a church there, um, the Church of All Nations, and believe it is, and uh, right outside of that is an, is an olive grove. And many do believe that is the site or one similar to it, uh, a place where, where Jesus, uh, we indi- indicate in this passage, would come now that he was back in the, the city of Jerusalem and in this region, and as he was teaching in the temple, indication here is he would come here often, and it was his practice and his uh, pattern to come. And obviously to spend time uh, with his disciples, but to spend time with the Father and prayer. And Matthew and Mark indicate that he took Peter, um, uh, James and John a little further with him into the garden, but still he was uh, apart from them. The scripture says here, a stone's throw away. I guess it depends on how far you can throw a stone, as to how far that would be, but some short distance away from them. Uh, Jesus often prayed with his disciples. We see that in scripture. And we see that he taught them in, in to pray by modeling prayer for them and by praying with them. And, uh, but this time, the Lord Jesus uh, needed to be alone with the Father. Though he wanted them near him, he needed to be alone with the Father during this time. And, and of course, we know how important that is in our own lives, that we enter into our uh, prayer chamber, as Scripture talks about it, and spend time with the Father. But this alone, of course, was, we believe, perhaps the most important prayer in history. And Jesus now is entering into this time alone with the Father. Mark indicates that he prayed in Mark 14, 36, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. The word Abba, of course, is an Aramaic word. And it literally means Papa, Daddy. It's the most intimate term for Father that can be used. And Jesus taught us that we are to pray this way. And Scripture says, as believers, we have the indwelling Holy Spirit, and we cry forth, uh, Abba, Father, speaking again of our close intimacy with the Father. So using these words certainly describe to us the, the relationship that Christ, who is fully God, a part of the Godhead, fully God, but also fully human. And there is no division in his relationship, but in full unity with the Father during this time and during this prayer. So we see Jesus prayed with intimacy with the Father. But notice also Jesus prayed openly with the Father. We see in verse 42 that Jesus prayed, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus prayed, Father, if you're willing, remove this cup from me. The gospels um, indicate that he prayed this, the other gospels, that he prayed this more than once. Let me say several things about this. First of all, that Jesus was not trying to avoid the physical suffering of the cross. Rightly so, we often talk about the tremendous physical sufferings of the cross. And it was tremendous physical suffering. But that was not the greatest suffering of the cross. And Jesus was not trying merely to avoid the suffering and death of the cross. Jesus was not afraid to die. He came, the Bible says, for that purpose. He had not changed his mind about the cross. He was not hoping for some way to avoid the suffering of the cross. That again is why he came. So then what was he praying openly with the Father, expressing his heart, if you will, to the Father? Well, he was instead dreading the bitter cup of God's wrath. 
Remember, Jesus is fully God. He has always been God. He's always existed in eternity past with the Father. He has always been in perfect harmony with the Father and and in living in a, a perfect holiness with the Father. And the Bible says now that at this point when Jesus is about to go to the cross, as 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, he who knew no sin, he who knew no sin was about to become sin for us. As Herschel Hobbes puts it, his holy soul drew back from the horror of becoming the very essence of sin. So again, this openness is just demonstrating the battle that was going on within the the perfect holiness of God, perfect humanity, and yet complete, perfect deity. And that is what is going on in the heart of Christ. The wrath of God, as we describe it here, this cup that is being described here, again, describes the cup of the wrath of God. It is seen in eternal torment. It's described in a scene which occurs in the great tribulation that we read about in Revelation 14, 9 through 11. I want to read those verses uh, to you. It says, And another angel, a third, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and its image and receives a mark on his forehead or on his hand, he also will drink the wine of God's wrath poured full strength into the cup of his anger, and he will be tormented with fire and sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb, and the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beasts and its image and whoever receives the mark of its name." So he's describing here those who are going through eternal torment, those who are going to receive the wrath, the full cup of God's wrath poured out upon them. And he describes here their eternal torment that is going to occur. And and yet that is what the Lord Jesus drank for us. That is the cup that the Lord Jesus bore on the cross, the sin that he bore in his body on the cross, and all of God's holy anger that was poured out upon him on the cross. He paid my debt so that I don't have to suffer that wrath, so that I don't have to suffer that wrath being poured out upon me for all eternity. That is what is he describing here. And of course, on the cross, he cried out, it is finished, paid in So the Lord Jesus, again, prays openly with the Father. But notice third, if you will, Jesus prayed submissively to the Father. Notice again those words as we read them here. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. So it's very important to understand, friend, that Jesus was not struggling here with the Father. He was not struggling with his will against the Father's will. No, Jesus was always fully submitted to the will of God. He was fully submitted to 
God's purpose, the Father's purpose, that he come and be offered up as a sacrifice, the Passover lamb, the one even prophesied back in Genesis chapter 3 that he would crush Satan's head. So Jesus has always known this was the Father's purpose from eternity past. He's always known this. So his will is in perfect submission with the will of the Father. Philippians 2.8 says that he became obedient even to the point of death. The Lord Jesus was submissive to the Father in every way. And by the way, this is very, very key to understanding what's, what brings about victory in our lives. It is total submission to the will of God, both in our living and now that we're seeing Jesus in prayer, also in our praying. It is a total submissiveness to the will of God. George Mueller, a great prayer warrior of many years ago, uh, speaking about prayer, said, I seek at the beginning of my prayer to get my heart into such a state that it has no will of its own in regard to a given matter. You see, prayer is not coming to God and trying to convince him to get, go along with our desire, our will. It is getting our will in line with his will. And that is the key to victorious praying. And so, like Mueller, we should come to the Lord and seek at the very beginning to get our heart into such a state that it has no will of its own, that our will is fully experienced in the will of God. But notice number four, Jesus prayed dependently upon the Father. We see in verse 43, and Luke is the only one to mention this in the Gospels. He said, then an angel appeared to him from heaven, strengthening him. We might think, how would an angel strengthen the Lord Jesus? And maybe that may not sound so strange to you, but realize that angels are created beings too. You might ask yourself, how would I, if I were called to strengthen Jesus, how would I be able to do that? So obviously we know that, that uh, he, the, the, the strengthening here is not so much a spiritual strengthening. Jesus was filled with the Spirit of God at all times. He depended upon the Spirit of God. He was fully God. So the strengthening here, uh, this word is used only one other time in Scripture, and it's used uh, to speak of Paul when he was strengthened after fasting and prayer in Acts chapter 9. Uh, verse 19, I believe it is. So, uh, so again, the strengthening obviously is physical, even an emotional strengthening. You see, Jesus was fully God, but he was also fully human. And so we see the torment and the, the agony that the Lord Jesus is, is experiencing here. So he's praying in dependence upon the Lord. And, and the Father sends an angel to strengthen him uh, physically and emotionally because of this warfare prayer that the Lord Jesus is experiencing. Might ask a question this morning. Do you ever need the Lord to strengthen you because you are exhausted in praying over people who are lost, who are in need of Christ? Would the Lord need to send an angel, deploy an angel to help strengthen you, to encourage you physically and emotionally and spiritually because of of your labor, as the Bible describes it, in prayer. And then I want you to see number five. Jesus prayed in agony to the Father. Verse 44 says, And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly 
Then his sweat became like great drops of blood falling down to the ground. Again, Luke, I remind you, is the physician. He, he again, is the only one to mention this aspect of the, of the agony, of the suffering of his prayer that he's experiencing during this time. The word agony uh, speaks of a great contest. And the Bible says he prayed more earnestly or fervently. And this too means a, to strain. Again, it shows what, a, what tremendous strain the Lord Jesus was under in this warfare prayer. His sweat became like great drops of blood. The word drops here means clots of blood. So, so again, he's describing here the intensity of what was taking place in the heart and soul of the Lord Jesus Christ during this prayer. Jesus said in Matthew 26, 38, Then he said to them, My soul is very sorrowful, even to death. Remain here and watch with me. Bob Deffenbaugh says that our Lord's sorrow was so great that he was virtually at the point of death. That is how tremendous this reality of becoming sin, who, the one who knew no sin, how tremendous this was, how deep and how, uh, what magnitude this was upon the heart and life of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, there in the Garden of Gethsemane. We need to understand, dear friend, what the Lord Jesus was about to endure for us. Best we can, we need to ask the Lord to enable us because it's beyond our human comprehension to fully understand what Christ was going to endure on the cross. In his book, Radical, David Platt describes the cross this way. He said, if you and I were standing a short 100 yards away from a dam of water 10,000 miles high, and 10,000 miles wide, and all of a sudden the dam was breached, and a flood of water, by the way, representing the wrath of God, came crashing toward us. And right before it reached our feet, the ground in front of us opened, it, opened up and swallowed it. That gives you just a visible picture, if you can, of what Christ was in, going to endure for us on the cross as the wrath of God, the holy anger of God, poured out, was being poured out upon the Lord Jesus Christ. And at the cross, Christ drank the full cup of the wrath of God. And when he had downed the last drop, he turned the cup over and cried out, It is finished. That's what the Lord Jesus endured for us. And that is the battle that was going on when the heart of the holy God, the, the holy man of God, the holy God-man, if you will, the Lord Jesus Christ. But I want you to see second. Jesus calls his disciples to warfare prayer over temptation. We notice at the very beginning when, when Jesus entered there with the disciples that he, uh, he said to them in, in verse 40, pray that you may not enter in to temptation. And then again in verse 46, he says, why do you sleep? Rise and pray, lest you enter in to temptation. So twice he says to his disciples to pray that they might not enter or yield into Satan's temptation. Jesus was not in danger of failing, dear friend. We need to understand that as well. But they were. And we too face the same danger. So in light of this, I want to mention uh, three specific temptations to which Jesus, I believe, was referring at this time on the eve of his death and that we should pray for these as well. 
First of all, pray to overcome Satan's temptation to rely on yourself. Pray to overcome Satan's temptation to rely on yourself. Jesus had uh, reminded them of his provision uh, when they went out, as we saw uh, and, uh, last week's, in last week's message, and he would continue to provide for them. And Jesus lived in total dependence upon the Father. He lived in total dependence upon the enabling Holy Spirit. And the same God who sent that angel to to strengthen the Lord Jesus is the same God that we serve, who also provide what we need in terms of our strength. We notice in this passage, verse 45, that these disciples were were sleeping because of, of, of their sorrow. They were overcome. You remember, you think about what they've just experienced, what they've heard as the Lord Jesus has told them that one of them is going to betray him and that one of them is going to deny him and, uh, and also that he is going to die. Even though they didn't understand this and even though they had been rejecting it many, in many ways in their mind, they're overcome now. And, and so in their, in their exhaustion and their discouragement, they were sleeping. We can probably identify in our lives uh, when it's difficult. Maybe you have that struggle sometimes when it comes to reading the word and spending time in prayer. But Jesus has, has instructed them to pray that they might not enter into or that they might not fall prey to temptation, specifically to rely on themselves. But sadly, instead of praying, they were sleeping. And so, as we're going to see in next week's message, when, when they come to arrest the Lord Jesus with this mob of people, uh, what do they do? They immediately fall back and rely on themselves instead of relying on God. Peter pulls out the sword, probably one of those two that they found at the Passover meal, and, uh, and he's ready to use the sword. He was kind of excited when, he, when the Jesus said, take up your sword again. So he's ready now to, to use that sword. So what is he doing? Once again, he's relying on himself. He, he cuts off the, the, the ear of the high priest's servant, and the Lord Jesus performs the uh, miracle there to restore it. Uh, but again, what is he doing? He's depending on himself. And friend, I would remind you that when we yield to Satan's temptations to rely on ourselves, we often make foolish and impulsive decisions that not only hurt ourselves, but hurt others. Second, I want you to see another area that Jesus, I believe, teaches us to pray, and that is to overcome Satan's temptation to resist God's will. Perhaps Satan's greatest temptation for them was to resist God's will in his death. You remember that just after uh, Jesus commended Peter for his great confession when he asked him, who do you say that I am? And Peter said, you're the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus commended him. Right after that, Jesus again told them that he was going to the cross to die and he'd be raised again. And what did Peter say? He said, this will never happen to you. And Jesus then turned to that one he had just commended and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter's attempt again at the, in the garden to, to stop the Lord Jesus and stop the arrest of Jesus was a, resist, a resistance to the will of God in Jesus' death. In John 18, 11, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given to me? Praise God, 
Man, Peter, or anyone else could not hinder the Lord Jesus from drinking that cup and from completing the work of redemption. But I wonder today, could you be resisting God's will as, as you fail to carry out the commission that he's given you because of the redemption of Christ? Could you be, could you re- be resisting the will of God by failing to, to obey the gospel, failing to share the gospel, and even to respond to the gospel? But then third and finally, pray to overcome Satan's temptation to run in fear. Matthew tells us that after Jesus' arrest, all the disciples left him and fled. Peter's denial of him soon followed, and Satan, like it, the Bible says, is like a roaring lion. He, uh, his, his roar frightens us. Oftentimes, and we run, instead of running to the Lord, we run right into his path and fall prey to his temptation. We run in fear. And the disciples continued that way, even up until the time of the, the good news of the resurrection. They were hiding in fear. And that's exactly what Satan wants us to do. He wants to, us to run in fear. You know, in the, the world in which we live today is a, is a, is a wicked world, and we certainly want to pray for the suffering families right now in Florida who've lost loved ones in this terrible, terrible tragedy in the shooting. Uh, but even in, as believers, sometimes we not only want to run in fear physically, but we run spiritually from the, from the enemy instead of running to the Lord. When the Bible says that he will always, in time of temptation, provide a way of escape. And the Bible tells us in, in Psalm 46 that he is our refuge and strength. And he calls us instead to run to him. So in this story of the, this incident of the Garden of Gethsemane, the Lord Jesus fought the greatest battle ever fought in prayer. It is a fulfillment of Isaiah 53.3 that says, He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. The song says, man of sorrows, what a name. For the Son of God who came, ruined sinners to reclaim. Hallelujah, what a Savior. So as we think about this passage today, I want to share several concluding thoughts. First of all, the the measure of Christ's suffering, the, the, the magnitude, if you will, of Christ's suffering reveals to us the magnitude of Jesus' holiness. Secondly, his great suffering shows how wicked our sin is and how wicked we are that would require a holy God to send his precious son who would bear our sin and the wrath of God upon himself and die in our place. Third, his agony in prayer demonstrates how deep His love is for us. For his prayer through this agony until victory was won shows how powerful prayer is. And the Lord Jesus would see that need for prayer and acknowledge his need, how much more we need to acknowledge our need for God and how much more desperately do we need to pray. And in the words of the song, love so amazing, so divine, demands my soul, my life, 
and my all. This is Pastor David Lawrence. Thank you for listening to this message. We pray that God used his word in your life today. If you do not have a relationship with God, the Bible says you can as you turn from your sin, place your faith in Christ Jesus, his death for you on the cross and his resurrection from the dead, and surrender your life to Jesus as Lord. We'd like to invite you to join us for worship. You can find information about the times and locations for all of our gatherings on our website at lucybaptist.com. If you have any questions or if we can minister to you in any way, please call us at 901-872-0623 or email us at info at lucybaptist.com.